It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 217, Cyrus the Legend, Part 1. Daniel, the chief administrator of the Babylonian Empire, sits at his desk while the days dispatches letters and intel is arriving at the palace. He is studying the ancient equivalent of blueprints of a project he's working on as the dispatches are read. In his normal tone, he would respond as he continued in like manner, busy, fantastically busy, triple-tasking until his sole focus zoned in on a surprise of a lifetime. My lord, we have news from the Medes today. Daniel doesn't look up from his desk, where he is extending an ancient form of the protractor, measuring angles and alignments of architecture. There is never news from the Medes. What goes in media? An uprising, my lord, the page said. Astyges puts down uprisings all the time. It's not that abnormal. He causes them and he ends them quickly. He's a violent tyrant. No, my lord. The Persians and other tribes have revolted. Revolted? Yes, my lord. Who is leading the revolt? His name is... The page fumbled for his documents, knowing he, he'd forget his name. His name is... Did you forget? Daniel wasn't very patient with the scribe on purpose, for the scribe was new and needed some help with his skills. I've never heard it before in my life, the Babylonian herald replied. Here it is, here it is. His name is Sai, Sai. He continues to fumble. The previous king's name was Xiaxeres, Daniel insisted. It's a common name in media. No, 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 my lord, here it is. His name is Cyrus. Daniel dropped his protractor instantly. His name alone gave him a chill, and he was charged with fear and excitement at the same time. Not to show too much excitement on the outside of this herald who knew little about prophecy, he was new. He commanded him to research everything about this man and to return as soon as possible. Daniel sat alone in the giant palace room, remembering the words about Cyrus the man, about the restoration of his people. Cyrus, my shepherd, the one whom the Lord will level mountains before him. How could he have not known it? He would be a Mede or a Persian. This would be the land where God will rise up their deliverance. Amazed, Daniel holds his hands in an upward position as tears overcome him, flooding the blueprints with his tears. The man of deliverance has come. Now this was made up. It's a fictional narrative created to show how amazed Daniel was when out of nowhere the man of prophecy shows up in world history. The man he had been praying for for years has arrived. And as smart as Daniel was, I don't doubt he missed Cyrus would come from Persia. 
Just because God can cloud our abilities to forecast prophecy. And also he loves to surprise in the wildest ways. And that's what's going to happen. And I get super wrecked when I think that Herodotus, the father of history, is part of God's plan. More to follow on this. Now we get up to speed on the goings-on in the last episode and in the time frame from then until this episode. And then we go retro back to the birth of Cyrus and his legend. And how he is the man who just shows up in world history. After Nebuchadnezzar's illness of sorts, he reigns for another 10 years or so. These 10 years are very stable for the region and its empire. And I have to believe his last 10 years are years of discipleship and training for Nebuchadnezzar under Daniel's leadership. One would think much opposition would have risen up during the years of his absence, but his harsh destruction of his enemies and Daniel's able administration kept the empire running smoothly. And as mentioned before, in Nebuchadnezzar's absence, Daniel effectively ran the government of the Babylonian Empire, a power few of us could even understand in this day. So Nebuchadnezzar, the destroyer of Jerusalem, the commissioner of atrocities, an all-around evil despot, consider this question, did he make it to heaven? It's a challenging one, but it's going to be one to help us to throw out that, that uh, any of those work-based theology many of us may have. Good works do not get us into heaven. Faith does. Good works have a reward, but you have to believe Jesus dies for you on the cross. He is an atonement for sin, and he is your Savior to get to heaven. Nebuchadnezzar was horrible. He had deep, dark stains on his conscience. and He was temporarily possessed by the devil himself, probably. But he did repent, and he wrote letters to the entirety of his kingdom proclaiming the power of God. Did he make God his Lord? Did he submit to him? That's the big question. He probably did in his last ten years of his life. He incurred one of the most humbling of experiences any man has ever had. And I personally would not be surprised if he was in heaven one day, probably on the back row with Manasseh or someone similar. All the evil, repented despots, joyous that they were saved, and they made one crucial decision before the end of their life. When Nebuchadnezzar dies, the Babylonian Empire doesn't crumble, as much as it slowly dies as the result of horrible leadership. The next ruler is called Emil Marduk, and historians have called him Evil Marduk. He will rule only three years. Josephus' account is pretty short about him, and I'm, and I'm struggling finding the reason for his evil moniker. It just generals that he was cruel and evil. And There's a highlight to Amal Marduk, though. The Bible states he actually freed Jehoiachin from prison and esteemed him as his most intimate friend. He gave him presents and gave him honor, fulfilling prophecy. Daniel would serve him just as his father, and then Amal Marduk is murdered by his son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar named Nigar Sharuser. He will reign four years. See the chaos descending as the years and years of consolidation and power and Nebuchadnezzar is waning for the Neo-Babylonians. Okay, so now we are current with the timeline of Daniel, learning of the rise of Cyrus in Media Persia. So at the moment... Daniel's under this king, Nagar Shar Yusser, and we don't have too much on him in history, but Daniel most likely just kept his position, 
where he was at. He may have lost some favor, gained some favor, but generally he's such an admired, excellent administrator, he just keeps his position. And he, he doesn't seem to follow the political paths and get himself in trouble. He's just an awesome administrator. All right, so let's give the geopolitical picture. Something's going on north of Babylon. If you remember back when Nabopolassar ruled Babylon, he allied himself with the Medes under Xaraxeres to conquer Asher and eventually Nineveh and to tear down the Assyrians. See, the Medes were never subject to Babylon. They were allies. And this alliance is going to be challenged as a new leader rises in the land of the Medes. Now, the Medes have a small neighboring kingdom adjacent to them. And it's called Persia. It's from Persia media where the news arrives to startle Daniel. He's been praying for this man, Cyrus, prophesied by Isaiah. So our story goes back 40 years, around the time when Jehoiachin was removed from his throne in Jerusalem. It was around this time when a baby was born in the city of the Medes. And by timeline, Jehoiachin is actually tied to this leader. And before we cover the birth of the next king of Media Persia, let's cover the prophecies about him, because the parallel is the stuff of biblical legend. Isaiah 44, 24. This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of the false prophets, who makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise to turn it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd." And will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. 150 years back, Cyrus was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. He will fulfill the predictions of his messengers. He will command Jerusalem to be inhabited again and rebuilt. He is called my shepherd. He will say to the watery depth to be dry. He is my shepherd. Let it be rebuilt. Let its foundations be laid. Oh my, the order to re-inhabit Jerusalem has already been decreed by God. And God has assigned a task to a future secular ruler. I like how it says also that he is my shepherd. Let's not forget that one. While the world is going to call Cyrus lucky, we're going to call him prophesied. Isaiah 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and be, will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel who summons you by name, for the sake of Jacob my servant, of Israel my chosen. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me. 
so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does a clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does the work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, What have you begotten? Or the mother, What have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry host. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness and I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So adding to our list of prophecies um, to be fulfilled by Cyrus, we have gates and bars and doors will be opened before Cyrus. Mountains will be leveled. This scripture is amazing. Cyrus is anointed to do God's work, despite him not knowing it. He'll rebuild Jerusalem in its God's grace, not for a price. He will subdue kingdoms and rise in honor throughout the world and secret treasures will be surrendered to him. So we've arrived at the legend of Cyrus now and, and how this is going to all go down and the history of his birth. We'll have to see the fulfillment of these words over the, the next podcast due to some timelines and just how much time it's going to take to tell the story. Now the birth and early life of Cyrus doesn't have a lot of sources. The primary one is Herodotus, the Athenian historian who is considered the father of history because of his massive quantity of words on the Persian Empire and the Persian Wars. Herodotus was a Greek, and he, and he clearly believes in his gods and the legends of the Greeks, and one could say he was, in many ways, an exaggerator in world history. But then again, he's the only documented voice of many of his stories. His account of the early life of Cyrus is extremely violent and colorful, but there's something about it that, that fits our story so perfect. And it's interesting, and believe it or not, it ties directly into the prophecies. So despite his exaggerations in some of his historical accounts, I guess when it comes to Herodotus and the story of Cyrus, unless Herodotus was a student of Jewish history and prophecies, who would have never known he was writing the fulfillment of many of these words? And the rest of Isaiah's prophecies and fulfillment. Um, I mean, because Herodotus is going to actually be a voice for the entirety of the life of Cyrus. Um, this is just the beginning. And it's such a confirmation of the spiritual warfare that's going on. Before we start, remember though God is above everything. Um, but at the same time, there is a devil at work. Daniel is studying and learning the prophecies and praying for Cyrus. And many others are as well. Beyond prophets and intercessors learning prophecy, the devil and his minions, not the despicable me ones, the devil's demons, they're watching the fulfillment of prophecies as well. And when a boy is born and named Cyrus, he has a demonic target on his head because of heaven's design for him. 
and just picture the devil putting a bounty on his head and his demons pursuing it wholeheartedly. When a man named Cyrus is born, some of the worst spiritual warfare on the planet comes out. And at the same time, watch how God prophesies through idol-worshipping witchcraft forms and speaks destiny over Cyrus before he is even born. And there's going to be many lessons into this. God speaks through anyone, I mean anyone. Witches, warlocks, even truth through exaggerating historians. Now let me introduce our narrator as we end this episode, because most of the next episode will be um, just snippets from Herodotus that we're going to throw into the story. Here's what the Encyclopedia of the Bible says about Herodotus. Herodotus was born in Halicarnassus in Asia Minor, and he lived to see the Persians take over the Ionian Greeks. He was expelled from his home for political reasons, wandering through much of the ancient world, and finally settled on as a colonist in Thury in Italy, where he died. He is commonly referred to as the father of history, and is best remembered for his histories, nine books dealing with the provincial history of the Persian Empire, the immediate causes of the Persian and Greek War, and the actual war itself. The value of his works has been disputed, but recent archaeological finds have tended to vindicate his truthfulness. The underlying philosophy of his work is that pride draws down the wrath of the gods, which accounts for the fact that the Persians lost the war to the numerically inferior Greeks. So adding more to that comment on accuracy, uh, there's an interesting note at the end of uh, an entry on encyclopedia.com about Herodotus. And it mentions Herodotus's sources. This is what it says. In compiling the materials for his histories, Herodotus depended mainly on his own observations, the accounts of eyewitnesses on both sides, and for earlier events, oral tradition. There was very little in the way of official records available to him, and few written records. The results of modern archaeological investigation so that he was a remarkably accurate reporter of what he saw himself, but when he depended on others for information, he was not always critical in deciding what was reliable and what was not in making due allowances for the bias of his informants. Herodotus was probably uncritical in dealing with military operations, since he had no personal experience of warfare and therefore could not always assess accurately the military plausibility of the stories he heard. And at the same time, it is clear that he did not always believe what he was told and sometimes related stories of doubtful reliability because it was all he had. Or because they were just such good stories, he could not resist them. It is also sometimes said that he did not take care enough over matters of chronology. But it was very difficult indeed for anyone to work out and present a detailed and accurate chronological scheme in an age where every little Greek city-state had its own way of counting years, and often its own calendar of months and days. Herodotus's chief weakness, however, lies in his often naive analysis of causes, which frequently ascribes events to the personal ambitions or weaknesses of leading men when, as his own narrative makes clear, there were wider political or economic factors at work. Alright, so let's be clear. Without Herodotus, we would have little of the details in this time frame. And I'm so thankful, and going back in history, it'd be amazing if we actually had uh, Herodotus in every century. But at the same time, he's a traveling storyteller. And he has his, his, uh, um, his good and his bad. He's a dramatic storyteller. 
I have an old Penguin Classics copy of his work, and I dust it off here and there. And here's what it says about the book titled The Histories on the back cover to give you more insight. Herodotus, The Histories. Herodotus's Histories, the first masterpiece of European prose, is built around the great struggle between Greek freedom and its Oriental despotism. During the 5th century BC, a small and quarrelsome band of Greek city-states united to repel a mighty Persian army. While the story of this heroic drama forms the main theme Herodotus's narrative, the author's curiosity flashes out of the text with dozens of digressions. He describes, for example, the monuments, crocodile hunters, and natural wonders of Egypt, the warriors of the Sudan, the northern nomads, and the lake dwellers of Europe. Endlessly entertaining, he recounts many superb stories and folk tales about amazing escapes, ambiguous prophecies, gold-digging ants, and dog-headed men. And he conveys vividly the frugality of wealth and happiness and the unexpected moral patterns in our lives. All right, so enough bio on Herodotus. I mean, he's an awesome historian. I mean, I'm so thankful we have him. He tells the story of the Persian Wars and the detail, and he gives such good detail on a lot of these civilizations. He has moments, you know, like we read, is where he recounts other stories or, you know, the dog-headed men or just some unusual things. But, um, you know, if we're given a percentage, like, his historic accuracy in many things is very high. Um, so we can't discount him. And and to be honest, I, I just think God picks this guy and he's like, you're going to write these histories and you're going to be the documenter of histories. But within it all, you're going to be the one who actually tells the story of the man who's going to come and help redeem these people. Because of Herodotus, we have the backstory to God's anointed shepherd, the backstory that fills in the gaps and tells us the levels of mire and depth of depravity the devil will go to in this story to prevent God's Redeemer from coming forth. In this next episode, we dive right in to discuss the legend of Cyrus. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.